Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Parents, at this time, you can dismiss your children for Children's Church. Miss Ashley is standing back there at the doors. We'll take you to the fellowship hall. Teacher lesson to you this morning. Broken windows, broken doors, broken cities, broken systems, broken schools, broken laws, broken treaties, broken vows, broken promises, broken marriages, broken homes, broken bodies, broken bones, broken dreams, broken spirits, broken hearts, broken lives. To quote the title of a 1989 Bob Dylan song, everything is broken. Does that capture a little bit of how you're feeling right now about things in our nation and things in our world? Everything is broken. And perhaps if we'd stop short of saying everything is broken, which might be in order, given the glimmer of encouragement we received this week from the decision handed down from the Supreme Court, we would still need to recognize that there is nothing in this fallen world that works the way it is supposed to. And there is much that is broken and breaking down in our nation and in our world. That Everything is Broken song came out in 1989. Bob Dylan was saying that in 1989, that everything is broken. And now 33 years later, we find ourselves at a point where we're reading about a mass shooting that's happening somewhere in our country almost every week. We're living at a time where it seems like we can't have a respectful conversation with someone who disagrees with us at all. And it's something that's modeled to us by our inflexibly partisan national leaders incapable of having a respectful conversation with anyone who disagrees with us. We have extreme bias in our media sources on both the right and the left, and so it's very difficult to trust any news report we hear whatsoever. It seems that we've lost the ability to make any distinctions over the most basic kinds of distinctions that have been made throughout history. We can no longer tell the difference between a man and a woman. And to top it all off, we've been paying more than $5 for a gallon of gasoline. How are we to endure such times? And maybe more importantly, is there anything that's capable of fixing what's broken? Well, I believe that the ultimate answers to today's problems lie in the ancient wisdom of Holy Scripture. Probably doesn't surprise anyone in here. I hope it doesn't surprise anyone in here that I would say that. That the ultimate answer to today's issues can be found in the words of Holy Scripture. Because God's Word is not just some ancient word that has irrelevance. God's Word speaks directly into the brokenness of our world today because it's a living word. It's a living word that supplies us with God's unchanging truth, His enduring wisdom, and His infallible direction and guidance. And we often hear God in His Word speaking directly into broken lives and broken places. And one of those places we hear that is in Isaiah chapter 59, a chapter that's written to an Israel that finds itself mired in national sins and widespread immorality as it's turning away from God and rejecting His Word. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, Isaiah chapter 59, to hear what this chapter 
has to say to us this morning. Let's read the description of Israel that we find in Isaiah chapter 59. So you can open your Bibles and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. And this passage can be found on page 359 in those paperback Bibles. We're going to read all but the last verse of Isaiah 59, so 20 verses. It is a lengthy reading, but if you're able, I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 20. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their words are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked, and no one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Grass withers, flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, in Isaiah 59, the God of grace provides a vision for fixing what's broken. 
And this is an important vision for us to catch as we face our own social challenges and unraveling culture. And the first thing we see is this. Witness the horrible effects of cultural godlessness and grieve. Witness the horrible effects of cultural godlessness and grieve. The first part of this chapter is characterizing for us Israel's national life. And we discover there that there is violence in verse 3 and again in verses 6 and 7. There's lies and corrupt speech, verses 3 and 4. There's a lack of justice and a corrupt and perverted court system in verse 4. And we see this again in verses 8 and 9. We see this thirst for evil, feet that are swift to run after evil in verse 7. There's crooked lawsuits that are being entered into with this climate of conflict without peace. We see this in verse 4 and verse 8. We read here of division that's fueled by this rejection of any shared transcendent truths among the people. And so there's this division while at the same time there's high costs for anyone who would speak out against the madness and the mayhem. Just listen to these words again in verse 14. Truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. We have this description of the people in verse 10, that they're like people who are groping for the wall like the blind. This is a description of people who are utterly lost in confusion. Witness the horrible effects of cultural godlessness. Everything is broken. Now these words were penned 2,700 years ago. To an Israel, 2,700 years ago these words were written. This is a description of a culture that long ago. But does it not sound quite familiar as you read it? You want to talk about violence? Homicide is the second leading cause of death for people between the ages of 15 and 24 in this country. The second leading cause of death for those in the ages of 15 and 24 is homicide, murder. And there's people that are getting gunned down in grocery stores, in school classrooms, on campuses, at music festivals, in places of worship with increasing regularity. I want to talk about injustice. We have court systems in this country where it's possible for a Stanford student to be convicted of sexual assault, to be convicted of rape, and receive a six-month jail sentence. While another person, a black military veteran, is convicted of selling $30 worth of marijuana to an undercover police officer, and he gets life in prison. That doesn't just, that's not just capable of happening. That has happened. Both of those instances are real. If we think about lawsuits in our country, we are a litigious people. I read about an Orlando man who received a haircut and sued his hairstylist because he alleged that the haircut he received induced a panic attack and infringed upon his right to live a happy life. He got a bad haircut, and so he sued the hairdresser. That's one of many examples that we could multiply. We enter into lawsuit for all kinds of unjustified reasons. And we see division around us as well. We are a deeply divided people politically. And that division is likely to be increasingly apparent in the weeks and months to come. 
given the Supreme Court decision. But at the same time, we're deeply divided politically, but there are serious consequences for anyone who would stumble upon the tripwires of political correctness and violate that, like a woman named Maya Forstadter, who was fired from her job at the Center of Global Development, which was an international think tank. And she was fired for tweeting that she didn't believe that people were capable of altering their biological sex. She tweeted that she didn't think that was capable, and she was fired. But what we need to see in this violence and in this injustice and in this conflict and corruption and division, what we are witnessing is our own cultural godlessness as we turn away from God and turn away from his truth. Now, there's a number of ways that we can respond to this. It's easy for us to respond with criticism and cynicism and belittling and denigrating and vilifying and with scorn to any of those that we think are responsible for precipitating the brokenness. We can also respond by separating ourselves, trying to distance ourselves from the mayhem and withdrawing into Christian hubs and Christian bubbles. But one way of responding to the horrible effects of cultural godlessness that we see and responding to the brokenness that is vital but seems to be sorely lacking is this response, to grieve, to grieve. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And when Jesus spoke those words, he wasn't talking about people who have to endure heartbreaking losses in life, as valid as that mourning and that grief is. That's just not what Jesus is talking about there. Jesus is talking about blessed are those who mourn the reality of sin that we live in a world that is not the way it was supposed to be, that we inhabit a creation that was made in order to reflect the glory and the goodness of God, and that creation now has been marred and defaced and polluted and ravaged by the effects of sin. But ask yourself, do you spend more time grumbling and complaining in conversations and in social media about what you see around you and happening around you than you do actually mourning with heaviness of heart? When you see the godlessness around you, do you grieve the brokenness? Do you grieve it? Is it heavy on your heart? And when you see God and his truth being rejected, does it break your heart? Does it? Because it should. And if it doesn't, then you're probably not going to be moved to pray with desperation the way that Jesus taught us to pray when he taught us to pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven because your kingdom hasn't come in its fullness yet. And that's obvious because of the cultural godlessness and the brokenness around us. If we're not grieving that, we will not pray that prayer with desperation. Lord, your kingdom come because it's not here yet in its fullness. And when we're not praying that prayer, what we're likely to drift into is hardness of heart toward those that we regard as our cultural enemies. And we will be prone to answer violence with violence. And we'll be prone to answer injustice with injustice and evil with evil and hate with hate. And that is not the path for fixing what's broken. That is not the way for fixing what's broken. But let's be very clear The effects of cultural godlessness are not just things that we're witnessing. 
We're impacted by these things personally and negatively. We're impacted by these horrible effects of cultural godlessness because there's no such thing as a purely private sin. There's no such thing as a sin that only affects an individual. Sin is like throwing a stone into a pond and there's ripple effects of that in it and it goes everywhere. It covers the surface of the water because there's no such thing as a purely private sin. Remember when Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord in disobedience to God's call for him to go to Nineveh. He boards a ship and it wasn't just Jonah's life who was endangered by his disobedience. It was every sailor on that ship who was now endangered because of Jonah's disobedience because Jonah's sin was not a private sin. And when a man named Achan decided to take some of the things that were forbidden for him to take because they were devoted to the Lord, when the people came in under Joshua and took the city of Jericho, when he took some of those things, he was not the only one who suffered for his sins. His family suffered for his disobedience. And the entire nation of Israel suffered for his disobedience because there's no such thing as a purely private sin. And here's what we need to reckon with. Godlessness strikes at the foundations of a culture. And everyone in the house will feel the collapse. Godlessness strikes at the foundations of a culture and everyone in the house is going to feel the collapse. Now at this point, you might be feeling like you're an innocent victim of the brokenness and the godlessness around you. But while we need to come to terms with the fact that we're not only witnessing cultural godlessness and its horrible effects, we're impacted by it, we also need to acknowledge this. We're contributors to it. And so, yes, witness the horrible effects of cultural godlessness and grieve. But we also have to own the humbling reality of personal transgression and confess. This is actually what we encounter in verses 12 and 13. Read these verses again. This is Israel's response to these accusations of sin. We read the people saying, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Listen, those who are grieving the brokenness of Israel in Isaiah chapter 59 are not exempting themselves from the conditions of the culture. They are confessing their own transgressions that have contributed to what they're seeing around them. They are agreeing with God against themselves about their sins, which is what confession is. Agreeing with God against themselves about their sins. If you remember, God calling the people out for their sins is how this chapter begins. If we go back to the beginning of this chapter, we hear God responding to this unspoken accusation, it seems, that he is either too weak or too inattentive to maintain order. That somehow God's arm is too short or his ear cannot hear. But God responds to that accusation in verses 1 and 2. So if you look at the beginning of the chapter, this is what we read. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In other words... God is saying, I'm not the problem. I haven't made this mess. You've made this mess. You've made this mess, Israel. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed this. 
If you see people at protests who are holding up signs, those signs are never owning any part of their contribution to the problem. When people are at protests holding up signs, it's always because someone else or something else is at fault entirely. Everything else is the problem because we love blaming people. We love blaming other people for what's wrong and what's broken in the world. We'll even blame God for that. It is not uncommon to hear people denying the goodness of God or even the existence of God because of how messed up and broken things are in our world. But we need to consider the wisdom of Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3, which says, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. But it's his own folly that's brought into ruin. But we love to blame other people. But we've made the mess, not God. And when I say we've made the mess, I don't just mean people out there. Now listen, we can cautiously make applications from Old Testament Israel to the United States as a nation today. We can cautiously make those connections because Israel was a nation in the Old Testament. But remember, Israel wasn't just a nation in the Old Testament. Israel was the covenant people of God. And so the more direct connection between Old Testament Israel is to the church today. Not to our nation, but to the church as the covenant people of God. And that's why we have to confess our own personal transgression and the transgressions of the church because the church has not been faithful to its calling in our culture. It just has not been faithful. Many churches, in many ways, simply follow the godless trends of the culture. And they have moved from and denied or are denying the authority of Scripture. And not only are we not very good at mourning the sins of our culture, we often don't mourn our own sins. Because we can talk very loudly in opposition to same-sex marriage and at the same time seemingly ignore the levels of dysfunction and divorce that are happening within the churches. That's met with silence. And we can combat very vigorously homosexuality and perversions of sexuality while at the same time ignoring oftentimes the fact that according to one source, 77% of Christian men between the ages of 18 and 30, Christian men, 77% between the, eight, between the ages of 18 and 30, report viewing pornography at least once a month. And that is often met with silence. That's happening in-house. It's 77% of Christian men. And we, have to, we have to acknowledge that the church has been complicit historically and presently, either actively or passively, has been complicit in cases of sexual abuse, leadership abuse, and racial injustice. We have to confess that. But we've all made our own personal contributions to this brokenness as well. In our homes, in our communities, in the places around us, in the way that we conduct ourselves, in our angry and impatient responses, in the lies that we hold and the deception that we spin, in the reactions that we have toward others, in the tyranny that we exercise in order to get our own way, with judgmentalism, self-righteousness, and divisiveness. You see the divisiveness if you're on social media. 
You see the divisiveness that's sown by Christians. And it's not that we're not to contend for the truth. We are to contend for the truth, but we are to do so with gentleness and respect is what we're instructed, not with the kind of vitriolic divisiveness that we often are sowing. We have to own that. We've not been poor in spirit. We've not mourned. We've not been meek. We have not hungered and thirsted for righteousness. We've not been merciful. We've not been pure in spirit, pure in heart. We've not been peacemakers. And we have not been willing to endure persecution for righteousness' sake. And because of that, we have not been faithful in being salt and light. Now, I'm not saying any of this to heap guilt upon you if you're struggling with sin. I'm saying it because we need to own the humbling reality of personal transgression and confess that. And we have to confess it because if we want to move toward genuine healing, we have to reach a point of hopelessness in our own efforts. We have to get to a point where we recognize the hopelessness of our own personal efforts and human efforts because human wisdom, human systems, human power will never ultimately be capable of fixing what's broken because we're broken. And we will bring all of those things to human systems and human strength and human power and human wisdom. And so, yes, we need to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But we need to say, let that start with us. We need to pray, let that start with me. Yes, Lord, your kingdom come to rule over my heart and my life. And your will be done in my life on earth as it is in heaven. Because then, we'll start looking outside of ourselves for rescue. And that will lead us to embrace the hopeful promise of divine rescue and trust. Yes, we should grieve what's broken. And we should confess our own brokenness. But that, by itself, is not going to fix anything. Only God can fix the brokenness. And that's what's conveyed in verses 15 through 18. God is witnessing what's happening, and he determines to intervene because divine intervention is our only ultimate hope. See, there's no human agency. There's nothing horizontally that can fix this ultimately, and that's what's conveyed in verse 16. It says, God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede, no one to step into this mess and speak for God and bring the people to him. No one. God looks into the mess of brokenness and violence and injustice and corruption and division, and there's no hope to be found horizontally. But it's into that hopeless state that we read of grace and righteousness. Then, then, his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Then we get this picture of God dressing himself And he's dressing himself for battle. We know he's dressing himself for battle because he's putting on armor. In verse 17, righteousness is a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And God himself steps into this mess and he fixes what's broken. And he stamps out the root of this brokenness, which is sin and rebellion against him by overthrowing his enemies and his adversaries. In verse 18. But there's good news here in Isaiah 59. Not only is God going to fix what's broken, remember, we're broken, and He's coming in judgment. 
according to these verses. But while God comes in judgment upon his enemies, we read that he comes in grace to those who trust him and repent of their sins. We get that in verse 20. A redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So grieve, confess, and own your sin and brokenness, but turn from your transgression and look to the Lord in trust to rescue you. And the way you turn to the Lord and trust Him to rescue you is to give your heart and your life to Jesus. Because beginning in verse 15 and ending in verse 20, Isaiah is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes and intervenes in the sin and brokenness in us and around us. It's this Jesus, God himself in the flesh, who steps into the messiness and brokenness of our world and arms himself for battle. And he steps into this world to do battle against our enemies of sin, death, and the devil. But the way he wages that war is by voluntarily suffering violence by crucifixion, by voluntarily subjecting himself to injustice and a corrupt court that condemns him to death and willingly enters into the suffering of separation from the Father on the cross so that our sins may no longer be a reason for separation from God. Because now we have one to intercede for us by his blood. Through his death on the cross and through the empty tomb, Jesus comes and he fixes what's broken and he establishes peace and reconciliation with God. He establishes truth. He establishes justice. And he overcomes the enemies of sin and death. And Jesus is coming again. And the response to this truth that Jesus has come and he is coming again is to turn from transgression and put your trust in him as your savior. And if you've not done that, if you've never done that, do that today. Don't let another day pass where you're not trusting in Jesus to fix what is broken. Because he is the only hope of fixing what's broken. But you can know if you put your trust and faith in him, a redeemer is coming to rescue you from everything that's broken. And in fact, that rescue has already begun because Jesus has lived and died and rose again and he's ascended into heaven and he's poured out the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active here and we live in an age of grace. We live in an age of great grace. Things are not as bad as they could be. There's a lot of grace. The Holy Spirit is doing work in our midst. And so we have much to be thankful for. Let's not forget that. We have much to be thankful for. In the church, we have much to be thankful for as a nation. I mean, consider as broken as things are around us, people from other countries are trying to come here because things could be worse and are worse in many other parts of the world. And so we have much to be grateful for. Things are not as bad as they could be, but things might not be as bad as they're going to get either because although this is an age of grace, we are not in an age of glory. That has not come yet. And so there's always going to be brokenness around us and there's always going to be brokenness in us and sometimes a lot of it until the return of the king. But the good news is God is at work even in the midst of that brokenness to do good things. We are not the first people to live in a culture that celebrates immorality in clear defiance of the Lord. In fact, that's been the norm through most of history. People living in clear defiance of the Lord and having brokenness all around. We're not the first people to endure that. 
But that doesn't mean that God has vacated his throne. He's still at work to accomplish things. And so trust him. Trust him to do that work where he brings people to taste the bitter fruits of godlessness so that they will feel a sense of their need of his rescue and rescue alone. That he's bringing us to a point where our powerlessness is exposed so that we will abandon our idols and look to him alone. He's reminding us that his kingdom is not tethered or tied to the rise or fall or fortunes of any earthly empire or any nation, one nation in the world right now. His kingdom is anchored in the gracious promise and power of the risen Lord Jesus, and nothing can impede the progress of that kingdom. Regardless of the rise and fall of any nations in this world, nothing will impede the kingdom of God moving forward. And he's at work purifying the church, purifying the church through hardship so that we would pry our hands off of the things of the broken world around us and look to his kingdom as our ultimate treasure. He's doing those things even in the midst of brokenness. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He wrote, the settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. You will not find that Settled happiness and security here. It will be elusive. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends. This is an age of grace, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. This is not an age of glory. We're not home in glory yet. In fact, we're in the middle of warfare. We're in the middle of warfare. Note that the armor that's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 59 the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation are items that are mentioned again in Ephesians chapter 6 as the armor of God that's been given to us. And so we don't simply wait for the kingdom passively. Instead, we engage in spiritual warfare. We push back against the darkness. We nurse what is broken and we resist the collapse, but we don't do this with earthly weapons. We do it with spiritual weapons. We do it through prayer, pleading in the power of God's Spirit to do a great work. We do it through witness and evangelizing, calling people, calling people to faith in Christ Jesus, that there's a way to escape the kingdom of darkness and to be brought into the kingdom of the Son. And that way is by turning to Jesus and putting your faith in Him. We do it through prayer. We do it through witness and evangelism. And we do it with a willingness to suffer, to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And we're willing to do those things because we have the assurance that the light of the gospel is stronger than the darkness and brokenness around us. And because the truth of God's word is stronger than the falsehood and the lies of the evil one. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than sin. And the love of God is stronger than hate. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We pray, as we find ourselves in this moment, that as we witness the horrible effects of sin that are around us, that our hearts would grieve. But our hearts would grieve also for the reality of brokenness that is within our own hearts, and that we would confess that, and we would own our own transgressions and contributions to that, and we would turn from our transgressions and trust in you and look to Jesus And look forward to his coming that's already been inaugurated. It's already in motion and it's already moving around us by your spirit. We thank you that we know it's grace. And we pray that you would come, Lord Jesus, and consummate your kingdom to come, the age of glory. Lord, we look forward to that.
In Jesus' name, amen.